0: So we currently have been going through this study, God's, the, through the series, God's Big Story. We are getting the big picture view of the Bible. Oftentimes we spend time in scripture, finding it hard to understand, and we bring our own cultural assumptions to what was being read. This series is helping us take a larger look at the Bible and what it teaches us about God. So I hope you're following along with us in the hot chapters that we're reading each week. This morning we look at the lives of the Jewish people who are living outside of Israel and Judah. Israel is the northern kingdom and was captured by Assyria in 722 B.C. Israel was conquered because of their faithlessness and disobedience. Judah and the southern kingdom was captured by Babylon in 586 B.C. Nehemiah has a prayer where he wrestles with the tragedy and the hope for the Jewish people in exile. Nehemiah 1, 7 through 9 says, I confess the sins of the Israelites, including myself and my father's family. I've committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to a place I have chosen dwelling for my name. There's a Bible project video that gives us a great picture on how exile fits into the whole story of history.
1: There's something about being home where everything's just right. We're
2: surrounded by people we love and trust. There's a feeling of stability and safety. And while some people get to experience this kind of home, many do not. Others might even be forced to leave their home and go live in a foreign land. We call this going into exile. Yeah, in exile, everything is disoriented. You're in the unknown. And in the story of the Bible, this is where the ancient Israelites found themselves. Conquered by Babylon, living in exile far from their homeland. And so they had to ask themselves, how did we end up here? And is there any hope of going home? And the whole story of the Bible is designed to address those very questions. The whole story? Really? Yeah, go back to the first pages of the Bible. Where does humanity live? Okay, they live in this really sweet garden, their home. And they're there on one condition, that they trust and follow God's one command, and they don't. And so the consequence is banishment from the garden. Ah, they're sent into exile. Exactly. And so this story has been designed to set you up for Israel's story, how they were given the gift of the promised land and were able to stay there on one condition, that they be faithful to the terms of their covenant relationship with God.
1: Uh, They didn't, and they were sent into exile.
2: And if you still don't see the parallel between exile from the garden and exile from Israel, think about this. In Genesis, humanity's exile led up to the story about the building of what city? Oh yeah, Babylon. The same place the Israelites are sent. But that is not the end of either story. In the first Babylon, God called Abraham to leave and travel to the promised land. And that story was designed to give hope to the Israelites currently living in the later Babylon. Now eventually, they do get to leave and travel back to their promised homeland. And when they did? It wasn't home, sweet home. Oppressive empires were still ruling over them, and the people kept acting in the same corrupt ways as their ancestors. And so the biblical prophets said that exile wasn't actually over. How could they think they were still in exile when they're at home? Yeah, this is really important. In the Hebrew scriptures, Israel's Babylonian exile became an image of something more universal. It's that feeling of alienation and longing for something more no matter where you live. Yeah,
1: I I can relate to this. I have a great home, but it's situated in a world scarred with pain and broken relationships, death, tragedy, done by others, but also
2: done by me. And so in the Bible, exile is the human condition. We all keep repeating this pattern of human corruption leading to a Babylon that we can't escape. And it doesn't matter where you live, we are all longing for a better home. Now, Israel's scriptures
1: held out hope that one day God would send a king who would rescue the world from all of the babylons we've created.
2: And after many generations pass, we meet this Israelite named Jesus of Nazareth. He wandered about with no home, announcing the great restoration, that reality of home that Israel and all humanity has been looking for.
1: Yeah, Jesus really cared about people who didn't have homes. He welcomed in the stranger. He said God's love is shown when you invite in the outcast and throw parties for people who do not have a place to belong.
2: Jesus also claimed that Israel and all humanity had lost its way, that our self-centeredness drives us to create false homes based on status and power and these inevitably exclude others. We live in an exile of our own making. But Jesus said the true way home is one of weakness, of service, and of forgiveness. And then Jesus went into exile alongside us to show us the true way home, which is? Well, Jesus said he is the way. His life and self-giving love proved more powerful than humanity's failure. He opened up a pathway to our real home. And as Jesus' followers committed themselves to him, they discovered this new way of being human. They believed that the real return from exile had begun. And so they would call themselves sojourners or wanderers. Oh right, they would say things like, the world isn't our home, and we're citizens of heaven. And so Jesus' followers remain exiles as they wait for that day when Jesus returns to transform this world into a true home.
0: Our passage in Daniel 6 is a familiar story to many of us who have been in the church. Many heard it as kids, and our teachers might have brought soft, fluffy lions to, to that lesson of, on the story of Daniel. It's easy for us to sit back and read these stories in our country where many of us cannot even grasp having to face the challenges of the Jews in exile. At the beginning of this passage, we enter a change in regime. Darius the Mede is stepping onto the throne, and he just conquered the king of Babylon. In building of Darius' kingdom, Daniel, as a foreigner, was set as one of three who oversee all the officials. In verse 3, it says, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Let's take a look at the string of events that brought Daniel to this moment. As a teenier, teenager, he was removed from his family and home. King Nebuchadnezzar transported all the young men of Babylon, of the, all the young men of nobility to Babylon. Their aptitude was tested, they examined their physical defects, and new language and culture were forced upon them. In Beth Moore's study on Daniel, she painted a picture of the transition like this: They read the language of their culture with the lens of God. thereby they became culturally relevant without becoming spiritually irrelevant. Against all odds, they retained a God-centered worldview so that, ultimately, the world could view their God. While serving the king of Babylon, Daniel was summoned. The king had held a banquet where this mysterious writing occurred. No one could interpret the words or the writing. Daniel translated the negative prophecy and was elevated to a high position. Imagine a kingdom where giving a, the king a negative prophecy results in promotion and gifts, especially in a pagan world where they believe speaking something would speak it into existence. Being able to translate would have been taken incredible courage from Daniel. Daniel's wisdom and courage elevated his influence multiple times in his life in this foreign land. Getting back to the story of Daniel 6. He was being set over the whole kingdom in Persia. Daniel believed, is believed to be around 80 at this time, so he had lived more years in this foreign land than in Judah. Clearly, his power and influence made him a target for sabotage. These administrators and satraps plotted against him, coming to this conclusion in verses 4 through 9. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it is something to do with the law of his God. These administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, and satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except for you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty issue a decree and put it into writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. The first question that pops into my head after reading these verses is, why would you ever think this decree is a good idea? Being a new king, he probably didn't know for sure who he could fully trust. And I wonder if they, supposedly being all the officials of the kingdom, said the decree would help him to build a loyal following to establish his new kingdom. If you were Daniel, what would you do? Knowing that the decree is for 30 days, The result of being caught praying would be death. We get a glimpse at Daniel's response to the decree in the next verses, 10 and 11. Now Daniel learned that the decree had been published. He went home to his upstairs room where the window opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Daniel went home. And prayed as he always prayed. He didn't close the windows, he didn't go from three pra- times of prayer to one, and he still faced towards Jerusalem. What would you have done in this situation, understanding that praying earns a visit to the lion's den, where there are lions anxiously awaiting their next meal? Would this have an impact on your life? what excuses would you come up with for self-preservation? At a minimum, I would have closed the windows. I would have struggled to justify reasons to stop having all three prayer times. I could see myself changing the times of prayer to avoid detection. There would be a part of me saying, it's just 30 days. And my mind would start brainstorming a list of reasons why I would honor God more by being alive. But the larger question that arises from these is what happens when our hearts and lives, when we take the easier path, if God is allowing this difficult opportunity for growth? Let me read that again. What happens in our hearts and lives when we take the easier path, if God is allowing a difficult opportunity for growth? If we take another step back, looking at the bigger picture in our lives, we can probably get an idea that we would respond in the situation by asking, am I living my life for God's glory or my own glory? These questions help us to assess the conditions of our hearts. Hebrews 11:13 through 16 says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have an opportunity to return. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Later in that chapter, verses 39 and 40 say, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. These verses have been foundational for me in building my faith. It's the chapter known as the Hall of Faith. And this explains stories of how people stayed faithful to God through difficult situations. I've come, often, I've come to it often to help me evaluate and reset my priorities. Our Christian values go against the cultural norms and messages that we hear. This passage helps me to center and reestablish that I'm living my life for Jesus. In reading these exile stories, I've been convicted that my life is not fully committed to Jesus, and it's not fully surrendered yet. One of the books that I have been reading this summer has been Good to Great by Jim Collins. Tucked away in this business book is The Stockdale Paradox. It came from Jim Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war for eight years from the Vietnam War. And to endure... Adversity, he says, you have to have faith that you will prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties, and at the same time, you must confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. Through God, we have the strength to endure and overcome difficulties, holding on to faith and truth, and this was the dilemma for Daniel. As the story unfolds, I want to look at King Darius and how he responds to Daniel's life. The opposition saw Daniel praying to his God and they make a point to report to the king that Daniel is seen praying to God. Verse 14 says, when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed and he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. When sundown came, the men opposing Daniel came to remind Darius that Daniel had dishonored the king. The decree could not be changed based on the regulations in Persia. The king gave the order to arrest him despite his effort to save Daniel. Darius said that Daniel, as he brought, was brought to be thrown into the den, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. In verse 18, it tells us that then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating or without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. I'm so amazed at the sacrifice and concern that Darius has for Daniel. He had already invested effort in finding a way around the decree that had been written in the hopes to save Daniel. On top of that, he fasted and grieved deeply over the situation. Clearly, Darius's concern was beyond merely service to the king. There's a friendship and a kinship that has grown in Darius for Daniel. There are a couple characteristics that are revealed about Daniel in the previous chapters. Humility and tact. Both of these have contributed to what set him apart. A good description of humility is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. For us to think of ourselves, we need to fill our thoughts and turn more of our focus towards God. Daniel also spoke with tact. He was able to deliver hard truth in a way that was kind and respectful. And I'm reminded of a quote by Kirk Byron Jones from Addicted to Hurry, and it says, the first step in learning how to listen to words more carefully is by mustering the determination to speak more delicately and carefully, not in the sense of walking on eggs but in the sense of handling precious gems. The words we hear begin to matter more when the words we say matter more i 've been challenged to be more intentional about the words I choose to say. This is more than just selecting the right word i 've been evaluating whether I need to share my own opinion in certain situations. This process requires reflecting on our motivations in what we say. And I've been asking myself questions like these in different conversations. What did, the statement in that, conver- what did that statement or conversation accomplish? And how did what I said in that conversation receive, a, receive that response? And is there a way, a different way, I could have phrased that statement that could have gotten a better response? We are not responsible for other people's responses, but we can craft our words to say hard truths with delicate or gentle words. And crafting our words stems from the condition of our hearts. If we are living for ourselves, this will come through in our words. If we are living for Jesus, This will be also seen through our words. In verses 19 and 20 of chapter 6, it says, At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came to the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Darius' statement in his anguished voice requires faith how did Darius know that he was a living God? And why would he come to attempt to ask Daniel that question? He's in the lion's den. I wonder if Darius started, to pray, started praying to save Daniel, a God-if-you-exist type prayer, or I'll-believe-you-if type of a prayer. He first tried everything that he could in his own strength and in the power of his kingdom. To no avail, Daniel's God became Darius's only hope. Many years ago, my grandma was diagnosed with cancer. She was the dearest person to me. And I prayed to God because that's where we directed prayers. I didn't know or really believe that he cared about my requests. I cried out to him because there was nowhere else to turn. I asked him to let her live through Christmas. And he heard and answered my prayer. That Christmas was the last day that our family had together with her. The loss of her love and support helped me to see my need. And it stirred a longing in me that I realized could only be filled by Jesus. Darius also came to the end of his strength and his effort. In verses 21 and 23, it says, Daniel answered, "'May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight.'" nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed, and he gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when the king was lifted from the den, or when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted his God. No wound was found on him because he had trusted his God. The story closes with this beautiful proclamation from Darius, sent out to everyone in the land, giving glory to God, for what he had done. In twenty six and twenty seven, it says, "I issue the decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is living, and for he is a living God, and his, he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed, his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders." In the heavens and on earth, he has rescued Daniel from the power of lions. In our country, our culture is shifting. Christians are being pushed to the margins. We have a choice in how we want to respond. Some of the ways that we tend to respond is denouncing our culture or forcing others to live by Christian values. What can this story of exile show us how to respond within our own culture. First, it's courageous faithfulness. Nehemiah's prayer displayed how central faithfulness in the story of exile really is. The exile was caused by the lack of faith in the Jewish people, and their hope for God to become come back, back home was restoring faith shown through obedience. Daniel's faith was so central to his life that you could not separate it from him. Darius grew fond of Daniel, and when faith becomes our foundation, it comes with peace. We no longer need to prove ourselves, and we know that we, accept, we know and accept that we, can be, that we belong to God, and He becomes who we pursue, and we can be free to live out the calling he has placed on our lives. Hebrews 11:6 says, "And without faith. It is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So what does courageous faith look like for you? Second is prayer. It's likely, it's likely Daniel went to God in these prayer times out of desperation He had built a habit of meeting God in prayer, and this became where he found strength, hope, and wisdom to face any situation. How do you respond when difficulty comes? We all have our coping strategies. I often start with telling somebody. Eventually, I arrive at prayer, but it's not automatically where I start. Where does prayer fall in your list of coping strategies? Learning to practice prayer in any season will build discipline to go to God in the difficult times. Third is caring for others. As we think, as we walk out our faith and practice prayer, God changes us. We begin to live more like Him. We begin to desire what He desires. And it says in the beginning we are created in God's image. We are called to live a life that reflects Jesus. In Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, it says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received, being completely humble and gentle, being patient and bearing with one another in love. Daniel didn't let this decree lead Darius to becoming his enemy. How can you follow Daniel's example to care for others when they don't care for us? Let Daniel's life of faithfulness and its impact on Darius's life be an example to inspire us towards keeping our lives focused on Jesus. Please bow your head with me in prayer. Lord, we come before you in awe of what you've done in this amazing story. Thank you for being a God that rescues people, Thank you for being a God that is all-powerful, using different means to get our attention to follow you. In this case, Darius needed a display of your power so that he would know that you are the only true God. If there is any doubt in our hearts about who you are, would you please solidify in our hearts that you are the only true God, worthy of our love and devotion? There is no one like you, God. Thank you for your incredible love for us and help us to believe and see that you are a God that loves your people and all people. God, our world today feels chaotic. Between political strife and rampant dissension. we come to you. We come for rest from the chaos. We come to you for wisdom to navigate a culture that doesn't uphold the same values that we do. We come to you for strength to stand for what honors and glorifies you. You, God, bring life, hope, love, and peace. These are what our country really needs. You are your, we are your chosen people to be a light to the world. Shine brightly through us. God, we, come to, we, we continue to serve and love you. Please come and reveal yourself in our lives and our church mightily. There will be, a, there will be times that we need you to show up to renew our faith. God, please show up and move in ways that display your overwhelming goodness to those around us. In these moments where you are moving, please remind us to stay humble. Our lives are for you, to honor you. These blessings that you will bring are for the kingdom. This is your way of moving to reveal who you are, draw people to yourself, and set people free. In Ephesians 3, there's an incredible prayer asking for power to grasp your love. Help us to know your love. I believe with every fiber of my being that if we really understood how much you love us, it would completely reorient our lives. The, the Ephesians prayer closes acknowledging that, that you are God and that you can do more than we can imagine for your glory and kingdom. God, come. Come. Please come and do more than we can imagine in our midst for your glory and to expand your kingdom. We close our prayer proclaiming the words of Darius' decree to fear you. For you are the living God and you endure forever. Your kingdom will not be destroyed for your dominion will never end. You rescue and you save. You will perform signs and wonders in the, in the heavens and on earth. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.